When it comes to what we were listening to on the radio in 1980, the year began much as 1979 had ended. And this was the number one song. Indeed, 1980 was a funny kind of year for music in Australia. Here's what you were buying and pushing to that number one spot on the sales chart. In May 1980, the radio station started playing a record by a Sydney band called Flowers. This song didn't make it to number one, but it was the first single of a debut album that would ensure that the band's singer and songwriter could follow his love of music and turn it into an extraordinary career. I'm Carol Duncan, and this is Ivor Davies on 1233 ABC Newcastle. What did it feel like was going on around you with that sort of music? Well, we came from quite a distinct sort of stream of music, which I guess had been uh, generated by uh, the punk movement out of um, Britain, but then it morphed into um, a very strange sort of hybrid because of technology. There was an explosion of technology, especially synthesizer technology at that period. So we were a kind of punk band with synthesizers, which was a bit odd. Uh, But clearly um, these other people were not, um, including Michael Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there were all sorts of strange things going on and... and, um, uh, and strange fashions, and yeah, it was a very interesting time. We put, uh, the first song that we put out was a song called "Can't Help Myself," and we'd been playing on all these, you know, classic punk venues for a long time. We'd been playing for about three years before we put out that uh, first record, and I remember being told that it had become a disco hit in Melbourne, and I was semi horrified. I was, I was actually very pleased that it was a hit, of course, but a disco hit. We're not a disco band. At that stage, Flowers was still very much a covers band, yeah. Um, well, we certainly started out that way, and, uh, but by the time we got to 1980, we had been playing um, uh, quite a few of our own songs. We still had lacings of um, the odd cover version. I think the most persistent were uh, not even fashionable at the time. They were things like T-Rex songs. But by then, we'd really um, turned into a, a, an original band, and we'd signed with a small independent label in Sydney called Regular Records, and we'd recorded our first album. And although they constitute really almost the first 10 songs I ever wrote... They did have a certain flavour about them that was, I guess, um, uh, once again, a hybrid of punk with synthesizers. Now, in the nicest possible way, Ivor, you couldn't have been very far out of uh, high school or the conservatorium by that stage. I think I'd dropped out of the conservatorium when I was about 21. Um, I would have been about 23 or 4 then, I think. How did you decide to steer your songwriting and releases in that environment at that time? I have to say, and it's a terrible admission to make, considering that um, Can't Help Myself, which was the first single, did uh, uh, make it into the Australian top 10, uh, that I was probably fairly unaware of radio except for Double J. That's a terrible admission for somebody who's attempting to break into <laughs> getting airplay on radio to make, but it's probably why I didn't know the next line to turning Japanese. Which would have been all over 2SM at the time. 2SM would have been the number one commercial like pop rock radio station in Sydney in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, indeed, and... Um and um, I missed a great deal of that. I think we were pretty well sort of buried in our own world. And our own world had been, as I say, dominated by, I guess, what I'd listened to as I grew up. And they were quite a lot of classic psychedelic and heavy rock bands, including Pink Floyd and so on. And then, of course, when Johnny Rotten arrived, um, the world was turned upside down, literally. put all of those big bands out of business overnight 
and um, London was the place to be. And I remember very clearly when Keith and I um, uh, had been the bass player and co-founder of Flowers, we'd been playing in uh, you know, almost every night of the week, sometimes nine shows a week. There were clubs all over Sydney, there were clubs all over Melbourne, there were bands everywhere, there were really great bands everywhere. You know, on any given night down the road, it'd be Midnight Oil and In Excess and any number of bands. And when we arrived in London for our very first international tour, we looked at each other and we said, let's get a copy of New Musical Express and go and see a band because this is where it's all coming from. <laughs> and there was nothing on. And I was absolutely gobsmacked um, that... You know, Sydney was a hundred times more active than than London on a on a club scene, and I it absolutely mystified me. All the pubs shut early; um, there was nowhere to go. Who did you admire at the time? What what would have been a couple of the songs that you just thought were really cool? I don't. It didn't. I didn't buy albums of anybody, um, so I didn't actually didn't consume music. I was very curious about music, but most of, as I say, what I listened to would have been via Double J, and Double J was a very progressive station. Um, uh, I think you've, it's sort of been forgotten, perhaps to some degree. But Double J were playing things that had been bought on import; they hadn't even been released in Australia yet, and so it was fascinating. We were hearing things we thought before anybody else in the world had heard them. You know, things like Elvis Costello and XTC and um, all mainly British bands, I think, but the, the odd thing coming out of America too. But um, there was that real movement of, of punk and new wave. So you and Keith have taken off to London. You're going to see all the bands, but no one's playing, no one's home. No one's home. And I remember at the time thinking, well, where did the cure come from? And, you know, where did... Where did all these ba- where did the clash and the damned and and the jam and where where are they all? I, sh- I had imagined that London was heaving with little clubs with those all those names playing in them every night, but um, it was really something created through the tyranny of distance, I guess, between Australia and London. We had amplified, I guess, um, that whole home that you know had started with you know, Carnaby Street and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and. In my mind, and I'm sure a lot of other Australians' mind, um, you know, this was the mecca that we were going to visit. And, of course, mm. it, it turned out that it was, you know, really as much a product of, of uh, you know, BBC One and radio and record companies as it, <laughs> far more so than it was of an active pub music scene, which, of course, was exactly what we had in Australia. So what did you do? Did you turn around and come home? No, we, we, we went off touring. We went off touring with Simple Minds, who were... Just starting to break through in Europe, but they had um, a quite successful album and we did a reciprocal deal with them. We said, okay, if we go and be your support band in Europe and that'll that'll uh, help us, um, you come to Australia and be our support band there because nobody knows you in Australia. And in fact, I, I to this day, and I'm sure Jim Kerr from Simple Minds would take credit in saying that really that tour we did with them broke Simple Minds in Australia. It was off the back of that tour that they uh, started achieving success here and of course um, many, many albums and many, many successes later, of course. Um, I still catch up with Jim Kerr quite frequently. And certainly as a punter, that was a wonderful series of shows. I can remember seeing the bands at, uh, I think it was Bryant's Manly Vale Hotel. Uh, very possible. And, uh, and that was one of many, many hotels, of course, up in that Northern Beaches area. And I ended up living up in uh, the Northern Beaches by complete accident. It wasn't... Um, but that was actually where we, we started out. It was quite sort of tribal. I remember there was a very big pub at Narrabeen called the Royal Antler. This was our first proper... Um, gig, I guess, and, and almost residency. <laughs> and at one point, Midnight Oil and us were kind of doing alternate weekends. So we never we never met them, we, uh, but, but there was this kind of unspoken rivalry, I guess, for the same audience. One of Sydney's great beer barns, the Antler. Um, it was. They were mad, of course, mad drunken surfies and probably a few other substances involved as well, but they were great nights. It was a very big place. I think it held something like 1,500 people. And um, and you're right, we probably did attract slightly different audiences. Um, um, and certainly we also had the other um, the other side of us, and that was playing at the inner city hotels, which of course were very much driven by the punk movement. So we'd look out on a place like the Civic Hotel and there would be a sea of black and safety pins. <laughs> My guest is Ivor Davies here on 12.33 ABC Newcastle's Friday Music Show. Ivor, from 1980 on, it, it, from really that first album when the band changed its name from Flowers to Ice House, which is pretty convenient. Was it s- as simple as, you know, look, we, we'll just do a swap of the album title and the name of the band? It was, but we actually had no choice. What we hadn't realised was that we were happily going along as Flowers in Australia and New Zealand. And as soon as uh, we were signed to an international record company and they said, we're going to release this around the rest of the world, uh, we have to do a little check on the name. 
And it hadn't even occurred to me that a band name is like a company trading name. And unfortunately, there were at least three other acts around the world trading on the name Flowers, one of them being the very, very famous bass player, session bass player Herbie Flowers, who hmm. you probably know best for being the creator of that wonderful bass line that introduces uh, Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. That's Herbie Flowers. And so there were objections and we had simply no choice. We had to come up with a new name. And this has happened to a number of Australian bands. It happened to Sherbet, believe it or not. Yep, they became Highway. And it happened to the Angels, who became uh, Angel City, I think. Hmm. And uh, our logic was fairly simple. It was people here only in Australia and New Zealand only know us by two things. That is the name of the band Flowers and the name of that album Ice House. So... We became Ice House. That decision, though, as you mentioned, other Australian bands have had to do that and it has not been successful. They haven't gained success overseas and perhaps haven't been able to maintain their success here. Uh, and I do believe that probably is a contributor to that. I think it's a, uh, you know, a band name sort of becomes its, its kind of identity um, in a far bigger way than just a set of letters. And um, I've had this discussion with my 17-year-old son who's got a collection of friends in a band and they haven't been able to think of anything. Um, and I keep asking, what's the band called? And we call something different every day. And I said, well, you better get it right because, you know, it will end up owning you. <laughs> he's he's going to have to get onto Twitter and crowdsource a name. Oh, that's a thought. Yeah, well, okay, well, I'll suggest that to him. It's so much easier these days, isn't it? Now, you think <laughs> your son has actually played with you, hasn't he? Ah, uh, yes. Oh, you you know about this. Actually, there's uh, it's, um, I I had a sort of fairly mad idea last year. Um, uh, we got this project up. The, the idea had been around since 1983. I remember we were touring in Europe and we had a number one song um, in Europe. So there was a lot of pressure on me. I was doing millions of interviews and we we're playing very big. Um, we're playing a very big festivals. So there were thirty thousand people through Germany and through uh, Europe, and we were playing on one. And um, I'd been highly stressed and uh, was sort of feeling the pressure a bit. And we were standing on the side of the stage and I was standing next to my bass player and Peter Tosh's band was playing. And Peter Tosh, for people who don't know, was the co-founder of Bob Marley's Whalers, yep. a big reggae player. And it was a big band. It was, you know, nine or ten people on stage and backing singers and whatnot. And I leaned over to my bass player and I said, Guy, see the guy at the back going, chukka, 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 chukka on the guitar, the laziest job in the world. I said, I want, I want his job. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this conversation with somebody and, and relayed that, uh, that moment last year and they said, well, why don't you do it? And I said, oh. Uh, anyway, uh, our manager thought I was mad. Um, a number of promoters thought I was mad too. Uh, but what we did was we completely reinvented Ice House uh, as a reggae band, as an eight-piece reggae band. We added some extra guys from Melbourne to give us a brass section. And we rearranged every one of the hits that we'd been playing um, in the classic repertoire as reggae songs. And we put two shows on, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney, as a kind of Christmas party um, because my feeling was uh, the reason we're doing this is because reggae makes you want to dance and smile and laugh. And we had the best possible time. It was fantastic. And, in fact, we've just released a recording. We, we recorded the, uh, the Sydney show. Uh, and so if you're looking for it, folks, we renamed the band Dub House. So the album's called Dub House Live. And my, I wanted to get my children to come. My daughter's okay because she's 20, but my son was underage. He's under the, under the drinking age. And the only way I could get him in was to put him in the band. So I, so, so I said to him, look, look, Evan, he's 17. He's a very good guitarist. And I said, I'm sorry, you're not going to get a rehearsal. You're not going to get a sound check. Here's a recording of a, a rehearsal of, of Street Cafe done in this style. You've got the guitar solo. Go home and learn it. Come back and I'll see you on stage. And so the poor guy was thrown on stage <laughs> with absolutely no preparation whatsoever, but fortunately he had done his homework and he did, he did a, uh, a great version of it and had a great night. This is special. This is my son, Evan. How did the kids see your career, Ivan? Um, well, the, uh, the strange truth to that is they didn't. I re finished the last tour that we did back in the day, as it were, uh, when my daughter was six weeks old. And effectively, we didn't play again. Uh, so my children grew up. And in, in 2009, our long-time uh, tour manager, Larry, who uh, works for a very big uh, um, audio production company, 
he'd been working with us since 1984, came up with the idea of Sound Relief and actually volunteered us. So we were the first band on the bill for Sound Relief. And so by that time, 2009, I think my daughter would have been 14 or 13 and my son 12 or 13. And that was the first concert they ever saw me play. <laughs> so they'd grown up all those years not knowing anything about it, well, relatively little. So as they've started to hear Flowers and the earlier Ice House, do they think it's cool or are you just dad and it couldn't possibly be cool? Uh, strangely enough, I've, I, I seem to have breached the, uh, the, the cool barrier into the cool area. A very strange thing happened. This is sort of before uh, my daughter really, uh, before that that sound relief show, and before she'd really known, you know, got to appreciate my association with it. She came home from school one afternoon, and waltzed in the door, and said, and announced, "I love the '80s." And I looked at her, <laughs> and I said, "Bryn, what about the '80s? I love everything about the '80s. The music, the blah, the blah, the blah, the blah." And strangely enough. The 80s is, is going through a whole new generation of cool at the moment. <laughs> yeah, except for the hair. Except for the hair, probably, and a lot of the clothes um, probably wouldn't, wouldn't qualify either. My guest is Ivor Davies from Ice House here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. So, the Ice House album that ultimately gave the band its name. Primitive Man, Sidewalk, Measure for Measure, Man of Colours, Code Blue, Big Wheel. We've had some collections, uh, some anniversary editions and Dub, Dub House, which has just been released. When you look at that part of your career, the pop rock part of your career, what do you see, Ivor? Look, I'm proud that we work very hard to kind of maintain, I believe, a kind of class and quality. And that went through everything, um, um, even the, the recordings themselves. It was a very, you know, you can imagine I went through the graduation from vinyl to CD, which was a massive turnaround and it happened incredibly quickly. It's very odd. I remember having a talk to a record company about it one day and they said, well, last year we manufactured 80% out of vinyl and 20% out of the new CD thing. This year, we're manufacturing 80% of CDs and 20% of vinyl, and the following year, we're not making any vinyl at all. Hmm. That's how fast it turned around. But Measure for Measure, you mentioned, our fourth album, is one of the first three fully digital recordings ever made in the world, which was you know, a real milestone. So it's the first completely noiseless recording that was made for the new format of CD. And it's sort of moments like that that I reflect on and think, well, you know, that was because we really put a lot of care and attention into the these things. But Ivor, you're also seen as one of the, the pioneers in Australia of bringing in synthesizers, of using computers, the fair light and so on. When You mentioned a really interesting word there about measure for measure. You said noiseless. And that is perhaps where the feud comes between the vinyl purists and the people who are very, very happy to purchase their, their music in a digital form, whether that is CD or, or now uh, via digital downloads. How do you see that vinyl CD war when it comes to audio quality? Uh, look, I noted with some amusement, touched with horror, a program that um, uh, Linda Mottram did at um, 702 in Sydney, uh, where there was this discussion about vinyl. And she spoke with a so-called expert um, who was uh, out of a university. And with due respect to that professor, I, wanted, I desperately wanted to call in and say, can I just tell you about what actually happens when you're making pieces of vinyl and why they sound the way they do and how it is absolutely possible to make CDs sound exactly like vinyl if that were the end game you wanted to have in mind. I won't go into it now, but the fact of the matter is it's all about a process called mastering. And the way that tapes, uh, mixes were mastered for vinyl had to be very particular because of the intolerance of vinyl. Vinyl can't carry very much uh, big bass. I found that out with the Flowers album when I insisted to the co-producer that we put lots of bottom end into it and then realised a bit later on when the mastering engineer said to me, I can't cut this to vinyl. It's got too much bass in it. <laughs> Whoops. Um, 
Oops, that's what those are the faults of mistakes you make when you're young. But look, I'm a firm believer in um, anything that doesn't have moving parts, and that is digital. I'm afraid uh, I've moved on from you know anything anything old school quite happily. I thought you might say that, which is why I asked. Did you call in? No, I didn't. I just thought, look, you know, it's probably more, too difficult a conversation to have in detail over the radio anyway. But it does infuriate me because um, I'm sure that you know if you got any mastering engineer onto the radio, they would say to you, look, it's mainly because people actually don't understand how these things are made. Mm. <laughs> that period in time there, that's early, right at the start of the late 70s, early 80s, there are huge changes about to come and you were confidently leaping into that technology. Yeah, well, I was confidently, and perhaps it was more out of ignorance than anything. Um, I certainly didn't see any risk involved, but the main driver for me was that it was th- th- these were new toys. I mean, every time something new was invented, I kind of my eyes lit up, and I thought, "Think of the possibilities." And I remember uh, expressly that conversation I had with our management, where. Uh, out of sheer, sheer coincidence, um, they moved offices from where they were in, in Bondi Junction to the top story of a two-story building in Rushcutters Bay, and the ground story was where they made Fairlights, believe it or not. And the management were happily oblivious to this, didn't know what was going on down there, but I did. And I came to the managers one day and, and said, I desperately want to get one of these machines. They are amazing and of course I was proven correct because they revolutionised uh, music forever I think apart from t- the technology of recording the sampler uh, which is what it felt like was was the single most influential piece of technology ever created and I said this to my management I would really desperately would like one um, the catch is that it's $32,000 <gasps> And that was in 1981 or two. So you can imagine how much money that was then. That was, you know, half a small house. Yeah, well, it was a house on the northern beaches, wasn't it? (coughs) Very possibly. (laughs) Oh, dear. But you got one. But I got one. And interestingly enough, my management were were quite philosophic about it because they said, well, it's a lot of money, but according to our calculations, you'll pay for this with the first two projects you use it on. And they were right. And the first project that I used it on was my very first film score for uh, Russell Mulcahy's Razorback, which is about 95% fair light. Somewhere in the Australian outback, he is waiting. Something big scared him away. Like what? I don't know. But it was huge. It was as big as a rhino. 95% 95% Fairlight, all about killer pigs. All, yes, and, and in fact, the great irony of that was that I kept, um, I kept producing bits, bits of music because uh, um, Russell Mulcahy was out in the desert filming scenes and he kept dragging out Peter Gabriel's fourth album, you know, the one with Shock the Monkey on it. And, yeah. And they're out in the desert with this blasting away on a, um, on a ghetto blaster and, and, um, and I got it into my head. Oh, I said, this is what Russell likes. So I started producing sort of Gabriel-esque soundscapes and so on. And the producers of the movie kept coming back to me and saying, no, 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 it's not what we want. We don't want this. And in the end, I sort of was getting various clues from them, but didn't really know. But I had another go. But this was along the lines of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. I don't know whether you know the piece, but it's a fairly mad piece of classical music. Upset a lot of people. I constructed all this with the Fairlight. Um, so it was a kind of quasi-orchestral um, thing. And they, I took it back to them and they went, yes, that's exactly it. And I said, well, you know, if you wanted that sort of thing, why didn't you go get a classical <laughs> composer? But anyway, that's, that's what sort of dictated the, um, the, uh, the score of The Mad Pig. Yeah. Now, Rite of Spring, of course, uh, caused people to leave concert halls and caused riots at the time. Were you thinking that maybe, maybe there could be a, a riot over Razorback? I don't think there was ever going to be a riot over <laughs> Razorback. No, look, I, I just actually happened to... Um, be a great fan of Stravinsky, with whom I share a birthday, by the way. Do you really? Um, mm. And you're right. For considering that it was 1913, I think, when that piece first hit the stage for Diaghilev's Ballet Company, but it wasn't just the music; it was actually the subject matter of the of the ballet. I think uh, was fairly upsetting to a lot of people because, of course, it's spelt the Rite of Spring, R-I-T-E, and it's all about primal sexualism, basically. Nerd romps under the moon. That's sort of thing. That's pretty much it. And so you can imagine to an audience uh, uh, of 1913 so that sort of idea was fairly horrifying.
Ivor Davies joining me here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle for the Friday Music Show. 1984, fascinating year. You've got Razorback. You've also got Sidewalk, which is the third album from Ice House. You're still a young man. You're 30-ish. Is this at this point where you realise that the student who had been learning oboe at the conservatorium, who'd been playing euphonium and so on, listening to classical music, didn't have to be a pop star? No, I had a, well, I had a very strange life prior to all that because, of course, I had a completely Jekyll and Hyde existence. I took up the guitar when I was 13 and taught myself, but it was also probably the same year that I started taking oboe lessons. And I had these two parallel lives and and completely separate lives. So I had a sort of set of classical uh, people. You know, when I was in high school, I played in a, a wind quintet and they, they, we used to rehearse um, every Saturday morning. We had all had our first cars at that point. You know, they were my friends and we went off and we won in, you know, the city of Sydney, Stedford and, and so on. They never, ever met the guys that I was in the acoustic band with, ever, hmm. <laughs> you know, because I just had these two lives. So my course was fairly accidental all the way through. It was probably always going to be accidental. To this day, I still keep remembering things that I did. I only remember quite recently... Um, I remembered that I was in the orchestra, which was primarily made up of um, members of the Sydney Symphony and the Senior Conservatorium Orchestra, of which I was a member, for the staging the first two Australian ballets in the Opera House. Um, and I would have been about 19. And, of course, that's a fairly big, um, a big moment for the Opera House to have a night featuring an Australian opera in that building. Hmm. And I'd completely forgotten about it. So, you know, there are sort of things from both lives that I've forgotten about. <laughs> 1985, you've, you've done a, uh, the soundtrack, the score for a movie about killer pigs. And the next year, you're into working with the Sydney Dance Company. So your career, that double life you've mentioned, Ivor, is really starting to, to change now. I have to give credit to uh, managers to some degree who recognised Ray Hearn I was managing us from the beginning and I think he himself considered himself to be a very erudite uh, individual. He was very widely read. He'd seen every movie possible. He had a huge record collection. He wasn't a musician, but he, I think, uh, spotted in me the potential that if I kept on that sort of very two-dimensional wheel of uh, write an album, record an album, tour an album, write an album, record an album, tour an album, uh, that I would burn out, that I needed something else to do. So it was he who uh, went uh, and secured the soundtrack, pursued the soundtrack uh, idea with Russell Mulcahy, and it was he who introduced me to... Uh, the Sydney Dance Company, who were a very dangerous company at that point. People sort of forget that, um, you know, they did ballets entirely naked. And, yeah. you know, this was quite revolutionary stuff uh, in its day. And they had a very young, hip audience. And it was actually a very smart move. Uh, but it was also a move that was good for the dance company. Um, I had also forgotten until reminded about a month ago um, that it, for the in the Opera House's entire history, this has never been repeated, but they did a very dangerous thing, and that is they put two shows on a Friday and a Saturday night, one at the conventional hour, and then a whole other audience would turn up at 10.30 at night, and we'd do it all again. The staff at the Opera House thought this was going to be an absolute disaster. Nobody's going to go to the Opera House at 10.30 at night to see a show, and of course they did, but they were all my audience. <laughs> and they were coming to see what all the fuss was about, and it was... Uh, the most successful season the dance company's ever had. Were you worried about your pop rock audience coming over to see what you were doing? And be, and going, oh, oh, well, that's not what I thought it would be. Well, I, I've... Oh, always utterly failed um, myself to understand what the problem is between you know various tribes of music you know I started off as a bagpipe player when I was when I was six um, and although I was I went right through that very 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 particular stream of classical m musicians and they are and they are a very exclusive lot a lot of them and they are also a very intolerant lot a lot of them I think things have improved but at that time, you know, they'd very much looked down their nose on, you know, popular music and rock and roll. But by the same token, it was equally prejudiced the other way around. Yeah. But I've never understood why. I don't get that you have to be one or the other, but you can't be 
<laughs> All of them. So in my head, there was absolutely no problem with our audience turning up to the ballet. <laughs> what gave you the confidence to follow both streams? Well, only because I can kind of speak both languages. I, I had a discussion with somebody the other night about music, and it is another language. It's certainly a language when you read and write it, and of course I learned how to do that. But my dialogue with rock and roll musicians has to be completely different because most of the people that I've played with all these years don't read and write music. But rock and roll musicians communicate in a different sort of way. And because I'm comfortable with both of those languages, I can happily sort of flick between the two of them at, at, you know, at whim almost. This, Ivor, is exactly why I don't let my kids drop out of their violin lessons, because I want them to have that other language, another language. Well, my, from my point of view, the single, by, by miles, the single biggest advantage I've had uh, in my work and succeeding within the broad framework of popular music is the fact that I was highly trained. That is the, the sure, most sure certain way to cut every corner you can um, is to actually know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> There's some wonderful advice from Ivor Davies. Joining me here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle, for, fast forward to December 31, 1999, and there is some video footage of you performing at the Millennial New Year's Eve concert uh, outside the Opera House in Sydney, and there is a moment on your face where you have, it has obviously just occurred to you how very, very special that moment is. The penny really didn't, drop uh, i mean there was there was such a lot of pressure involved in that because you know the transmission the tv director uh, greg benners uh, had synchronized a whole lot of footage to be running in parallel with the, the shooting the performance we had backups of backups of course you remember that everybody thought every computer in the world was going to blow up at midnight being the, the k2 bug and so on and we knew it was going out to around about four billion people worldwide uh, no, no pressure, pressure. There. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you don't get another it's not as if you can get to sort of the end of it and go oh sorry we muck that up can we have another go oh <laughs> they've already counted down we're in a new we're in a new millennium um, so I was in- incredibly aware of all of that and it actually I've watched back some of the footage and it takes me a fair old while to settle down it's just a case of oh it took me a number of minutes. It's a 25-minute piece, and it took me a, a number of minutes before I was, okay, we're up and running, everything seems to be working, blah, 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 blah. Everybody knows where they are. I can hear everything. And so, you know, I got to the end of it, and Richard Wilkins, who was standing there, I think it was he, counted 10, 9, 8. I, I stepped off the stage. Frank Sartor, the Lord Mayor, handed me a glass of champagne. Richard Wilkins counted down his 10, and the fireworks went off directly above my head, and that was the moment I went, Wow. <laughs> I'm okay now. I can breathe. I can breathe. Standing at the limit of an endless ocean Stranded like a runaway lost at sea City on a rainy day down in the harbour Watching as the grey clouds shadow the bay Looking everywhere cos I had to find you This is not the way that I remember
Tonietti is playing next to you. It's an extraordinary piece of footage that people should go and have a look at. The Ghost of Time uh, from Sydney, uh, New Year's Eve, 1999. But that look of relief on your face, you shake your head, you look, sort of look to the sky, look to the heavens, and you know that you're away. That's it. Yeah, no, I remember it very well. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Iva Davies is my guest here on 1233 ABC Newcastle. From this point on, you really are. It is it is that other career that's really starting to fire, isn't it? Because you head off then, speaking of Richard Tonietti, to work on Master and Commander. Yes, that was... Um, I've said to other, um, other young bands, members of young bands over the years, I said, just be aware, you never know who will be listening. And so it w- was thus that one person who was listening to The Ghost of Time on the Millennium Eve... Uh, as it was going out, one of those four billion people was one Peter Weir, an iconic Australian film director. And this is how bizarre the next few years ended up being for me in terms of things just popping out of, of no, seemingly nowhere. I was sitting in my, my studio up in the, the Northern Beaches uh, one day and the phone rang and a voice said, Ivor, this is Peter Weir. I'm filming Master and Commander on location in Baja, Mexico. I have fallen in love with the ghost of time I want you to reassemble your team and give me a score like that. The whole experience was incredible. To go to Hollywood, I remember when uh, I had a colleague of mine who um, was uh, my music edit- editor and he had worked quite a bit in Hollywood. He'd worked on Moulin Rouge and a number of other things. And he took me to the Fox lot and was uh, very well recognised. But the thing that became immediately apparent was how incredibly well respected Peter Weir is in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Even though you don't necessarily associate him with you know massive blockbuster success time and time again, um, he is respected by di- directors and quality people in Hollywood and that's the difference. I can't imagine what it is like though when you have been working so very much on your own projects and I guess Sydney Dance Company boxes the millennial concert 
commissions that are a little bit different. But all of a sudden, you're having to work to somebody else's work on a big screen. Well, we're very fortunate because Peter Weir has immense respect for music and uh, he said to me not once but twice, he said, music is the fountainhead of the arts. Um, That's how important it is to him. But having said that, he uses it very sparingly and in a very subtle way. And so we, I had the great luxury of having three months to work on what really equated in the end to not much more than 35 minutes worth of music. Now, um, if you go and see a film like Lord of the Rings, the composers had to write music from end to end of the film. So we're talking two and a half hours Mm. of music. Three months to produce that amount of music meant that it could be done with care, but at a fairly unstressed pace, as it were. Uh, And that was fantastic. And I have no doubt that Peter Weir was uh, quite deliberately planned, uh, planned the whole thing that way so that it would be not a stressful operation. He's a consummate filmmaker and he knows exactly what he's doing. So he, he schedules and plans things very well. Having said that, I always knew right from the beginning that the brief of a scorewriter is to write what the director wants to hear, not necessarily what the scorewriter wants to hear. So that was very apparent. But uh, so be it. it. Of course, very often these films are the vision of a director and so music is just one component of that and it should feed into their vision. If we look at those two arms of your career, and oh, it's a terrible question to ask, but I'm going to, what moment, what recording from each of those would be the ones you hold dearest to your heart? In terms of recording, um, I had a quite surreal moment because... Uh, through a, a long uh, process, which I, uh, I won't bore you with now. But, of course, I was very highly influenced by one Brian Eno, of course, uh, who was an absolute pioneer of uh, synthesizers and electronic music. And, in fact, probably invented the term ambient music. And, of course, he was a, a founding member of Roxy Music, but went on later to become incredibly successful in his own right. And especially as a producer, of course, he produced um, all, almost all of the U2 albums, massive albums. But... I'd been following since he was a, an early member of Roxy Music and, and especially being guided by his approach to synthesizers, which was very esoteric and completely at odds with a lot of the nasty noises that were being produced in the 80s, for example. And I thank him for that because it probably stopped me from making a lot of very bad sonic mistakes. Mm. But because of the producer that I was using at the time who was a friend of his, I found myself having a conversation with uh, with this producer saying, when I wrote this song, that we were, one that we were working on at the time, a song called Cross the Border, I had in mind Brian Eno's backing vocal style. And he said, oh, really? Okay. And I knew that Rhett Davies, the producer, had worked with Brian Eno. And I turned up to Air Studios, which is another very famous studio in London, to do the vocal session. And in came Brian Eno. And so there was a moment where I was standing in the studio, standing next to Brian Eno, who was singing my lyrics and my backing vocal line. And that was quite a moment for me because he was a real hero of mine. Before I let you go, Ivor, at what point did you realise that you had been successful enough to truly pursue anything that you wanted to do? I spent most of my career not actually quite believing that things would work. And in actual fact, I remember very clearly, uh, we'd, had no, we'd been working for years and years and years and years, playing around these pubs. The first album came out. And I remember when the first royalty check turned up and the accountant for the management um, company you know, asked me into the office and he said, well, here's the first check from the Flowers album for you. And I looked at it and, of course, I'd been broke for years. I'd, literally, my parents had to keep you know, paying the old rent payment for me and so on. Uh, we weren't earning any money at all. The album had only just come out. And I saw this check and it was for $15,000. And I looked at Gino, who uh, actually I had lunch with today, the same, same accountant, and I said, Gino, this is amazing. This is incredible. I know I'm just going to fritter, fritter this away. I know I'll never get any more money out of this business. What's the deposit on the cheapest, 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 cheapest house in Sydney? Well, I bought the cheapest house in Sydney with that, uh, with that deposit. But of course, it wasn't the last cent I ever made out of the music <laughs> business. But for many years, for a long time, I really didn't consider that it would, you know, it was going to go. It was going to last. I was going to, you know, make any money out of it. 
and uh, you know it's that classic thing where you know where luckily my parents didn't call me on the phone and say when are you going to pro- get a proper job but um, uh, they were very very supportive but uh, I think I was the one sort of um, secretly calling myself going when are you going to get a proper job so imposter good old fashioned imposter syndrome that that's that'd be it they're going to be on to me any minute now exactly what are you still learning Ivor? Well, uh, I'm still learning technology because unfortunately it won't sit still. Um, I just got uh, the industry standard for recording these days is a system called Pro Tools and uh, you very possibly use it in the studio there and, mm. and it's certainly in every recording studio in the world. Uh, and I've been working with Pro Tools for a very long time. But, of course, like any other uh, software, there's a new release of it every five minutes. So I'm actually getting to the stage where I really am going to have to run to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> so, unfortunately, at my age, I'm still having to learn technology because it's the, the basic tools of my trade and that's never going to stop. Are you still as excited by it as you were in the mid-70s when you and Keith Welsh started Flowers and then when you went and harassed your management to allow you to buy that first Fairlight for $32,000? I think it's, I'd probably take it a bit more for granted these days because things have exploded in the way that they have. And you can imagine the climate in which a piece of technology like the Fairlight came out. It was just mind-numbing. It was unlike anything, you know, anything anybody could ever imagine. Uh, whereas I suppose, you know, every time there's a new release of Pro Tools, uh, it's got a couple of lovely new features, but um, it is a development of something which has been around for uh, more than, much more than a decade now. Mm. However, having said that, uh, there seems to be a whole new generation of software writers who are incredibly interested in music and incredibly interested in playing with sound. And these are the people that are coming up with all the new kind of noise generating bits, you know, soft synthesizers and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of where the interesting area is. As we mentioned, Keith Welsh has been on this entire journey with you. Indeed, and uh, and in the music industry the whole whole time, all the way through. And he and I, of course, have been working closely over the last three years. And, of course, we've gone through quite a big period of... Uh, Did you ever hate each other? No. No, he's too nice Not to Not even a little that. bit? Oh, I think he probably hated me. Um <laughs> No, I was a fair, I was fairly volatile, but he was always annoyingly calm. You know, it was one of those people who, who just can't raise a voice or, or uh, you know, anything get flat, you know, get phased at all. Yes, over the last three years, we've we started playing again, obviously, and um, uh, we re-released the entire catalogue, and we put out a compilation called White Heat. Uh, which is about to go platinum, apparently. And Have you got any more room on your walls? Got well, I've, yeah. <laughs> no, the wall, the wall in the lounge room is full. But fortunately, I have a studio which has a wall as well, so they're, they're distributed <laughs> they're between buildings. <laughs> Spread them around, Ivor Davies. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you for generously giving us so much of your time. I have to admit, when you you said there that you were a bit volatile, I have to admit you're so much less intimidating now than that boy with the dark curls and the cheekbones that you could have cut yourself on what would you say to the young Ifa Davies with that you know old heads young shoulders what would you want him to know oh that's a good question um I think I probably did sort of seize most opportunities um that came my way so I wouldn't necessarily say you know just go as fast as you can with every opportunity that you can I probably would have said pay more of attention put more attention to where the money is going and who's getting it <laughs> Oh, you're a hard taskmaster. Oh, look, I kept a, a sort of overview, uh, but but as an account, as an accountant, as a forensic accountant, I've, I'm an overview kind of guy, as opposed to a uh, as opposed to a, a detail guy. All right, what's next? Uh, next, we're playing, of course, at uh, Belmont, and we're also um, we're heading over to Rottnest Island, which to perform, which I'm really looking forward to because it's supposed to be an amazing place. It's covered in quackers, isn't it? Apparently. But you know, I'm sure I'm sure they're cute. Uh, but I've, you know, we have photos of it posted on our Facebook page, and it looks incredible. So, um, so that'll be fun. Uh, then I'm going to have a holiday because I haven't had one for a while. So not for very long, but just enough to reach out. All right, can't wait to see what you do next. Looking forward to seeing you here in Newcastle, Belmont, 16 footers on uh, March 19. Ivor Davies, thank you for your time. Thank you very much.